Entering the Freedom Hut. Why would the elites want to cancel Abraham Lincoln? Obama knew more about Russiagate than we were told. Conspiracy theorist Jennifer Granholm for a Biden energy secretary. And will there be a COVID relief package? Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, friends. Honored and privileged to have you here with me. There are only a few names that you can think of from American history that we are all supposed to, that we all have some degree of reverence for, right? That, that we're supposed to believe, no matter who you are, where you come from in this country, you're supposed to think, well, that, that's a great man. There are only a few names where that is the case. And you can start with the Founding Fathers, the people on Mount Rushmore, and you would add uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and you some people would add, I, I don't know, you, you know, there, there are a handful of these names out there that when someone says, who's, who's a great American, and we can all agree on it, there are only a handful of names that come to mind. And for a lot of people, they were at least under the impression until recently that Abraham Lincoln was one of them, that Abraham Lincoln would be free from cancel culture, that this would be a guy that we could all agree did something pretty extraordinary and wasn't perfect by any means. But at the end of the day, he was on the right side and was the commander in chief of a military uh, that ended slavery in the United States. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. So we tend to give him a lot of plaudits for this. And as we know, he was assassinated afterwards for it. And But Abraham Lincoln would be one of those names where you'd say, well, the greatness of what he accomplished with the ending of slavery, the greatness that he accomplished with all of this, uh, wouldn't that then make him at least somewhat immune to these efforts to destroy historical figures based upon some perception of what they should be that's constantly changing and very new to our current moment but then i bring you the modern american lib the left the democrats and their wokeness their psychological disorder known as wokeness and we have yet another example of just how far that will go you have abraham lincoln as a name that a san francisco high school board or some kind of a committee that's looking to rename schools and it's in San Fran and, and they want to get rid of Abraham Lincoln's name from a school because he was, I believe the quote is insufficiently committed to uh, black lives mattering or, or to the, the matter of, of black lives. Now for the man that ordered hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, to their deaths or to extreme pain, mutilation, uh, being wounded on the battlefield to end slavery, to say that he was insufficiently committed to uh, black lives mattering w- would seem to be the height of insanity. And, and it is. But there's a reason behind all of this. So we need to start examining what's really going on in this country, because we're at this point where we're told that the Democrats are calling for unity, that Joe Biden and his would be 
cabinet. They're saying unify. And as we know, unify really means bend the knee to me. Do what I say and we'll call it unity. But while they're calling for this, we also see time and again, they don't particularly have any sense of unity to America as we know it. There's something very different going on. And it usually is incremental that this happens. They start with something where we say, "Okay, fine, you know, and this is why when there was that whole dust up about about Confederate generals, I was saying, look, I'm I'm not somebody that is going to carry any any water for the keep up some of these Confederate generals statue side of this brief. It's, you know, it's a community decision, a community standard. But understand this. They're coming for the founding fathers next. In fact, Donald Trump said at the time, well, what about Jefferson and what about Washington? Are they going to are they going to tear down those statues? There is here in New York City. I, I've seen this on many nights because I, I go for walks sometimes right near what is known as Columbus Circle, named for Christopher Columbus. It's a very large, very prominent statue of Christopher Columbus. There is an army of NYPD officers that are deployed in a huge circle with barricades and and they've got uh, they've got all kinds of additional ESU and vehicles deployed. It's it's crazy. And I've asked the cops, I've said, is this really because you guys are worried that one night the radical left is just going to show up and destroy this statue of Christopher Columbus? And they said, yes, absolutely. That is why we are deployed here. And this is in one of the ritzier parts of new york city it's outside the time warner center so even de blasio realizes this would get some attention but they say that columbus was a a a genocidal essentially a genocidal maniac who was engaged in the exploitation of humanity and so on and so forth they don't care that we celebrate columbus for discovering the new world for uh, europe and the rest of the world They, they don't care about that that's not that's not enough And as we see with Abraham Lincoln, it's not enough that he was the commander in chief and the president who led us into war, a war that did end slavery in this country and that he called for the freeing of the slaves during that war. Um, What's really happening here? There is an essay that I came across. I've never I've never even heard of this publication before, and I haven't heard of this author before, but I thought this essay was extraordinary and i read constantly uh the commentary all over the web and i'm always looking to see uh who who's worth reading because most of it 90 percent of what's published on the internet even by so-called conservatives or whatever is really it's repetitive it's an echo chamber it's just not worth spending much time on at least for me uh, as someone who's reading this stuff all day long this was really good uh this uh, it was at unheard.com and the author is Matthew Crawford, who is a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. The title is How Race Politics Liberated the Elites. And this is absolutely top-notch analysis. Um, it's, it's phenomenal, really. It's a really, really strong piece. And here, let me give you some of what we're talking about here. Um, and, and why this, I think, defines our current moment for the Democrat Party and for the left. The idea of a common good, this is a quote from the piece, 
has given way to a partition of citizens along the lines of a moral hierarchy. Instead of feeling bound up in a shared fate with one's country, one, a countryman, one develops an alternate, uh, alternate solidarity that is placeless. The relatability across national borders that the genteel folk feel in one another's company, the gracious ease and trust, the shared points of reference in high prestige opinion has something to do with their uniformly high standing in the moral hierarchy that divides citizen uh, from citizen within their own nations. The decision making class has discovered that it enjoys the mandate of heaven and with this comes certain permissions, certain exemptions from democratic scruple. This is spot on. Uh, this is excellent. He's talking about how in our country now, because America, I mean, the short version of this is that because America, according to the left now, is inherently racist and misogynist, it gives the elites, it gives this ruling class a mentality that they owe no allegiance to that entity, to America, at least to the idea, to the ideals of traditional America. They have something better. They're working for something better. And so there's no need for them to debase themselves by pretending that our flag waving jingoistic, we love the founding fathers in the Constitution nonsense should in any way slow their role. They get to do whatever they want. They know better. You see, they're above it. But this is this is a version of something I've said to you many times before. There are those of us who take tremendous pride in being American. And then there are those of us who take pride in believing we are better than America. And those are called liberals. Those are leftists. That's what they are. That's how they think. The reason that they're constantly encouraging the most toxic identity politics, racial politics, gender politics. The reason they do this is because they've adopted a philosophy that America is actually bad, that there is this moral rot at the center of this country. They've identified it. It's almost like they stumbled upon some secret knowledge and now they're spreading this great wisdom to all the rest of us. And anyone who rejects this, anyone who sees this for the intense hypocrisy that it is, is shouted down. Part of the patriarchy, part of the racist, misogynistic system. And also it gives the people at the top a total pass for not working for what we think of as the common good, not working for what we consider to be universal American values. They can live their lives. This is why they can fly on private jets to climate change conferences where they're going to talk about how you should be, you know, walking three miles or biking 10 miles to work every day. Can't put all that CO2 in the air. Well, they're above you. You see, they're working for this better world, this better place. You are part of this traditional America that's just so racist and misogynistic and and so awful. And so this. This goes way beyond even uh, way beyond the, the usual liberal hypocrisy. This is a kind of religion of elites excellence, and they are devotees of it. And they also get to think of themselves as great heroes for for standing up for the oppressed. I mean, how many of you does this sound like 
your smug neighbor who has a big Biden Harris sign in their yard. Right. Don't they always think that they're somehow so morally enlightened, even if their own personal choices are really crappy and even if they don't really care about other people or help them very much, but they stand for equality. In fact, these days they stand for equity, the preferred term, which is just equality of outcome, which is Marxism. Back into this piece for a second, quote, in the revolt of the elites, Christopher Lash spelled out in greater detail the role that claims of racial and sexual oppression play in securing release from allegiance to the nation, not just for those who identify as its victims, but for those with the moral sensitivity to see victimization where it may not be apparent and who make this capacity a touchstone of their identity. It becomes a token of moral elevation by which we recognize one another and distinguish ourselves from the broader run of citizens. Both Lash and Hannah Arendt argue that black Americans serve a crucial function for the white bourgeoisie as the emblem and proof of America's illegitimacy. They anchor a politics of repudiation in which the idea of a common good has little purchase End quote saying all those elitist, white, college-educated, liberal Democrats out there, the libs, who are always talking about, about racism. They don't do anything to solve racism. They don't spend any time in black-majority neighborhoods. They don't really know what's going on within the black community, but they love pointing out the racism all around them all the time, even where there's no actual racism sometimes. They do this because by demeaning traditional America, American values by saying that this place is racist and wrong and evil. They're not bound by the generally held conceptions of what makes a good American citizen these these days because they know better. They're above it. They're elevated beyond it. Doesn't this all sound exactly like the ethos, the modern philosophy of a Democrat? Don't you all have friends that are just like this? They've never actually been in a high crime uh, majority minority neighborhood for more than a couple of hours or maybe driving through it. But they want to give you lectures about BLM. That's right. They want to lecture you about BLM from their million dollar house in an all white suburb. These are the kind of libs we're talking about here. The ones who are frauds, the ones who are fakes. How do they get away with this in their own minds? This is how they don't take pride in being Americans. They think they are better than America. They know better than America and they want to transform this place in this image. And that's what we are facing now going forward. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. How Race Politics Liberated the Elites by Matthew Crawford. Unheard.com is the site. And I just I thought this was a, a fascinating analysis. And I like to give people credit when they do something like this that really advances the conversation. Other people just like to rip people off and pretend it's theirs. No, I want I want Matthew Crawford to get the high five he deserves for this. And he, he goes on. And, and I think we have to remember there's a a another way. To prove this analysis or this line of thinking, the legitimacy, the, the integrity of this philosophical approach, because it's not only in America that this actually has now spread 
It's gone beyond American borders. So you'd think that the the left's unique revulsion at the longstanding history of slavery in this country and then uh, Jim Crow and segregation. And, you know, they say that they're they're confronting that even today. That's what the left will tell you. But yet there are BLM protests in London, in Paris, in Germany. And the author points this out. This illegitimacy transcends any particular historical facts about slavery and segregation. It indeed transcends America, as one can surmise, by the ease with with which American grievance politics have been exported throughout the Western world. In this, we sometimes see the use of historical American references that have been weirdly transposed as when a house once lived in by Rosa Parks was relocated from Detroit to Berlin, the financial seat of the European Union. Under the empire of Christendom, the market for material relics from the Passion of the Christ was similarly global. They left the Holy Land and ended up in various seats of earthly power. Most recently, the transatlantic festival of George Floyd attests to the fact that it isn't simply America that stands accused. The social order is corrupt then. The labor movement once had an alternative order to offer in its stead, drawing on the socialist tradition. It was one that included African-Americans, not as African-Americans, but as workers. And this movement was fairly successful. Uh, What happened then? The prominence of the term repressed in the 1960s is is significant and marks a shift into a new terrain of uh, psychologized politics. The object of attack for the new left was no longer laissez-faire capitalism, but society. The Freudian superego, more or less, with its insistence on standards of behavior that are binding on all. Society is to be taken as inherently oppressive and discredited in the name of liberation. Effectively, America is so oppressive, racist, evil, gender discriminatory. It's such a bad place that the left can completely rewrite the rules of what we should be trying to achieve in this country. And on a personal level, they feel no particular allegiance to traditional America. And they feel like their actions are always justified because they're working for this greater idealized future. Isn't this every lib you know? Isn't this every smug Biden voter you've come across in the last year or so? I'm sure there are some exceptions, but I'm betting it's most of them. Just to finish this up, quote, if the ideal of a demoralized public sphere was a signature aspiration of liberal secularism, it seems we have entered a post secular age. Populism happened because it became widely noticed that we have transitioned from a liberal society to something that more closely resembles a a corrupt theocracy. End quote. Yeah, this is the religion of the elites we are talking about. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been saying for four years now that it's a certainty that Barack Obama, when he was president, knew that his administration on the way out was running a essentially a spying and uh and and disinformation campaign against the incoming Trump administration. It's obvious there's no way that Comey and Brennan and Clapper and go down the list. There's no way that they would have been able to that they would have felt comfortable doing this stuff 
if they didn't feel like ultimately they had cover from Obama for it, that he had at least been informed. And you'd say, well, how does that protect them? They would say they went through chain of command. This is how bureaucracies avoid accountability. No one is ever really accountable for anything because everyone's accountable for everything. That's the way they do it. So they just say, well, I I didn't I approve this FISA, but somebody else wrote up the FISA. Well, I wrote up the FISA, but somebody else provided the raw material, the raw information I used for the FISA. Well, I approved it, but somebody else was supposed to review it. Right. So no one ever really gets nailed, but they all know what they're doing. Right. They're all part of what, what is uh, almost like a federal government racketeering operation. You know, that's that's what you see happening here. They're all they're all a part of it. You want to bring like a RICO charge against them because it's a, a multi-layered conspiracy. And that is exactly what Russia collusion was. And I understand right now there's frustration because the Durham probe has not resulted in even a report. And I knew it wasn't going to happen on a timeline for the election because ultimately guys like Durham, guys like Bill Barr, they understand the politics involved here. And they're not they for whatever for their own reasons, for their own ethical choices and decisions, they will not bend the rules to be more political. They won't do it. They also maybe won't allow the other side to get away with doing it, but they themselves will not will not bend the rules in order to score political points. So they weren't going to accelerate the Durham probe. That's what I'm telling you. But now it's been it's been designated as a special counsel. And as we know, the Democrats will just say, oh, who cares? We'll get rid of that as soon as there's a Biden, uh, a Biden presidency. It will be more difficult, though, and it will give us something to work with and perhaps even escalate to where the Republicans are talking about impeachment. And I'm just going to say this. I, I believe in using all the tactics and all the the stratagems that the left engaged in against Trump. I think that we should hold them to their standards going forward, which means the bar for a Joe Biden, a Joe Biden presidency for impeachment, for special counsel. It's very low, very low. They told us that phone call that Trump had with his Ukrainian counterpart. If that can get you impeached, Joe Biden better watch his step the moment the Republicans take back the House majority. And I'm not going to stand in their way. I'm going to be cheering them on saying, yep, let's go for it. What's good for one side, good for the other. The only way to make them think twice about the kinds of underhanded tactics they use is to make them live by those tactics. It's the only way. Now let's get back to what the former president Obama knew and hat tip Sean Davis of the Federalist.com for this piece. DNI declassifies handwritten notes from John Brennan, 2016 CIA referral on Clinton campaign's collusion operation. Here's what he writes, quote, on Tuesday, director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe declassified and released to Congress handwritten notes from CIA director Brennan, as well as a CIA investigative referral to James Comey and Peter Strzok requesting that they investigate Russian knowledge of Hillary Clinton's anti-Trump collusion smear operation. He goes on, top U.S. intelligence officials were so concerned heading into the 2016 election that the Russians were aware of and potentially manipulating Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's plans to smear Donald Trump as a Russian agent, that they personally briefed President Barack Obama on the matter. Newly declassified Central Intelligence Agency documents show CIA officials also requested that the FBI investigate Russian knowledge of the Clinton campaign's collusion smear 
operation. Newly declassified handwritten notes from the former CIA director John Brennan show the U.S. intelligence community knew in 2016 that Russian intelligence was actively monitoring and potentially injecting disinformation into Clinton's anti-Trump collusion narrative. The intelligence concerning Russia's knowledge of Clinton campaign plans was so concerning to Brennan and other national security officials that they personally informed Obama of the matter in the Oval Office in the summer of 2016. These are handwritten notes from CIA Director Brennan. So they were telling the president then, Barack Obama, they were telling him, yeah, there's Russian disinformation stuff going on here. We got real concerns about this, but, uh, you know, maybe we could also use this. Maybe we run with this. See, that's what the decision was. This would be something like if a person came in and said, you know, I know, I know that uh, that, you know, John, my neighbor assassinated, not John Wilkes Booth, obviously, John, my neighbor assassinated Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you could walk into a into a police station and, you know, there's no statute of limitations on murder. So, you know, they would usually say, "Okay, let's. A normal reaction would be, let's take this person for psychological evaluation, or maybe you just ignore them and say, get out of here, buddy. But it's not always the case that people will act ethically when they're presented with information that a normal analysis would tell them is absurd. And so it also provides an opportunity for the unscrupulous. They can use that as the basis for an investigation. That's exactly what they did in Russiagate. All this stuff was being said, all these rumors, they had no real evidence at all. And there was Russian disinformation out there. And they figured, well, what if we just rely on the Russian disinformation and pretend that we believe it? And maybe we do a little bit, but not really, but maybe. And then we start monitoring, investigating, spying on the Trump campaign. Right? This would be like your neighbor, John, all of a sudden has Police officers banging on his door saying we have a you know, we have a report that you assassinated Abraham Lincoln. They, they could do that. Right. I mean, they, they could say that. I mean, maybe in that case, the, the case was never opened. It's not their jurisdiction. But you get what I'm saying. right? I mean, you know, they, they, they could they could come to you. And and if you were accused of, of a murder in California when you were actually in Omaha, Nebraska, and the police knew that. They could still continue the investigation of you. They could still say, well, you know, it's not totally not totally proven yet. But we rely at some level on good faith operations from people who have this kind of power. If you're willing to abuse good faith, you can find a justification to investigate anyone you want for anything you want. That's exactly what Obama and all the clowns around him did. Now we know. Obama knew about this and Obama never spoke out. He would have known that there was Russian disinformation, that the Russians were actively trying to lie about Trump to get this whole story of stealing the election and and Trump working with the Russians. Uh, He would have known that it was all out there. Did he ever speak out about this? Obama, right? The great patriot, the guy who loves the country so much. I mean, if you read the reviews of his most recent autobiography, because I think he's got four now, at least three. You read the reviews. I, I've never seen such uh, sycophantic rantings from people who at least ostensibly make a living from telling people important truths that they may not want to hear in the media. Right. They don't really make a living doing that. But that is that is what they say. Um, 
They love Obama in a way they've never loved any politician. The Democrats and this, the, the mainstream Democrat Party and its elites and intelligentsia think that Barack Obama is really above human. Not quite a god, but not quite a human being either. He's something even more special than that. And they were never going to push him on why didn't you, out of love for your country, come forward and say, hey, guys, th- this stuff about Trump being a Russian traitor, it really is really not it's really not true. We should. There's a lot of other reasons that we as Democrats don't like this guy, but that's not what. No, of course not. He was silent about it. Pretend that he didn't know anything about it. Man, I don't know. You know, just it's just the intelligence community, man. There's no politics here. It's just the IC doing what they do. That's what they tell us. That's what they claim. It's all a lie. Uh, we are heading into this period in American politics where I think they hope the left and the Democrats hope that they can bend us to their will about what we even remember, that the brainwashing will extend well beyond their most ardent supporters to people who are just trying to keep up with what's going on. And they are overwhelmed by the propaganda machine. So let me just tell you right now, let's let's get this for our purposes on the record so we can remember this. Barack Obama knew about the Russia collusion smear against Trump almost certainly ordered it to escalate. He definitely knew about it, and he did nothing to stop it as completely unethical political assassin Democrats went after the Trump administration with this lie for years. It is the worst political scandal of my lifetime. It's a disgrace. And all this stuff about respect our democracy and give up Trump and all this other stuff is coming from people who do not give a crap about the ideals or the rules or the aspirations enshrined in the Constitution and in the history of this republic. They could care less about any of that. The raw exercise of power, me, 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 I want mine, I'm right, I'm a lib, you be quiet, the media agrees with me. That is how they view all of this. So get ready for that going forward. Don't expect any good faith operations from their side. They feel like they largely got away with this, which means they'll try similar stuff in the future. And the only way that we can push back is by shouting the truth in their faces and refusing to bend when they try to coerce us with even more lies. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. As we've been talking here, it's hardly a profile in courage for McConnell to come out and say this now. His delay has had a real world impact and been physically dangerous for some people so around true. the country, which we'll talk about uh, over the course of this broadcast. What? What's CNN? What kind of craziness is CNN saying now? It's been physically dangerous. What's going on? It's physically dangerous to people for McConnell to that. No, it's not. The guy hadn't been declared the president by the Electoral College. That's when he's the president-elect. You know, what's next? The media's going to say, you have to declare the winner of the presidency before the actual election happens. Look at the polls, man. Look at the polls. Well, that's not how it works, is it? As we know, you better not trust those polls. Just remember this. Look at, look at a, just a, a series of, of issues from, from recent times. Whether it is on this election or it's on the BLM movement, the renaming of statues, uh, police reform, all, all of these issues. 
the people that try to that try to bend the knee to the left in the hopes that this will bring them closer to our side and will open dialogue and the Democrats will all of a sudden respond in good faith. They're always disappointed because when they're making outlandish demands or they're they're basing their whole argument in lies, in misrepresentations, and you say, okay, okay, but they're so angry about this. Fine. We'll give them. It's like it's like giving a child throwing a tantrum what he wants. It's not going to get better. Now they know. Oh, okay. So we just we just throw another tantrum. Great. Okay, we can do that again. This is the only way you can deal with the left. You you make overtures to the Democrats when it is in our interests and within our principles and when it shows good faith from their side. That's it. You don't do it because you hope they'll be less crazy once you've given them something they want. That never works. All you're just encouraging the encouraging the monster. That's all you're doing. All right. Mitch McConnell said calls Biden president elect the day of the Electoral College vote being held. And do, you, do they say, all right, good for Mitch McConnell that, you know, no, of course not. They hate Mitch McConnell. They hate the Republicans. They say, well, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. They profile and courage and people are dead. I know Stelter and Berman apparently sound the same, but they do kind of sound the same. It's hard. They profile and courage. Um, what was he supposed to do? Why call him president elect Biden before he's actually formally the president elect? This is a United States senator. There were legal challenges making their way through the court. There still are legal challenges making their way through the courts. But you see, it's, it's not enough. They tell you right now, admit that they're just say Biden's the president and, and tell us that there was no fraud. We can all be friends. Just say that there wasn't fraud and, and that Biden really won. One fair and square. No cheating whatsoever. We'll like you then. I guarantee you. If you do that, if you were to profess to, you know, your coworkers, or if you were to say online to someone you're having a debate over politics with, you know what? You're right. Biden didn't. Act, there wasn't cheating to help him win. There was no fraud. This was totally fair. And uh, they'll say, ha ha, you, you lost. You suck. It's all it's all over for you. You you know, you dumb Trumper like they're, they don't they don't want to be fair minded to you at all. So when they pretend that that's where this is coming from, it's a trap. It's a trap. It's the guy who you walk past on the street who says, hey, man, I'm I'm having a really hard time here. And, you know, I just I just could you I just can you can you just give me a dollar? I, I swear I just I, I need a dollar for bus fare and and, you know, then I'll be fine. And you say, all right, buddy. And you go for your wallet. And he goes, no. And he pulls out a knife and he says, I'll just take your wallet. Thanks so much. That's how the Democrats play this game. Do not forget it. But also don't forget that Trump's not going anywhere either way. They're starting to realize this with two. Even Romney knows it. Play 18. Well, I think uh, President Trump will continue to have substantial influence on the party. And I think if you, if you look at the people who are rumored to be thinking of running in, in 2024, besides uh, the president, uh, those are people who are, are trying to appeal to kind of a populist approach. Um, uh, so I don't think Trumpism is going away. Uh, but I hope that we can have disagreements over policy and a vision of our respective parties without continuing to promote a, a, a narrative which puts democracy itself in jeopardy. And when you tell people that voting doesn't work and that democracy can't work because we don't have legitimate elections, that's a very dangerous thing to be saying. No one says that democracy doesn't work. I mean, he, he, now he's just creating straw men. 
We're saying that when Democrats change major rules in an election to create mail-in balloting, which are which leaves the door wide open for fraud, and then there's all these really sketchy numbers and all these affidavits, we got questions and we want answers. Oh, but why are you threatening our democracy? Democrats were arguing for faithless electors in 2016. Do you remember that? The Democrats were arguing for the election to be nullified in 2016. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, just for your viewers out there, um, I, I know one of uh, the individuals who we just saw getting vaccinated is planning on traveling after the second dose. I, I, th- this is a source of confusion, but no, uh, this is one of the misperceptions here. Just because you get vaccinated with that second dose does not mean you should be participating in things like traveling in the middle of an out-of-control pandemic or that you're liberated from masks. Mm-hmm. Everything still applies until all of us get the two-dose regimen. We don't think that's going to happen until June, July. But And again, this goes back to what we just talked about, Chuck. We don't know if just getting the vaccination prevents serious illness or does it also prevent you from getting infection um, entirely, meaning you can still get infected with the virus potentially and pass it on to others. So really, really critical. Don't let your guard down just because you got vaccinated. You still might be able to get right. infected with the virus and pass on others. So please keep that in mind. So there's a lot they don't know. And the response to what they don't know is you can't have basic liberties and freedoms back. You can't live your life because they don't know. So let's just err on the side of continued isolation, depression, destruction of small businesses till at least next summer until the virus is zero. None of us are safe. None of us are safe. This mentality is outrageous. Uh, Unfortunately, it is the consensus mentality among the elites, among Democrats, among social media giants. They will censor you, as they have done to me, for even questioning this. We got another buddy, though, who also questions it and sees the damage, the devastation uh, across the country and in his hometown area of Boston. Jerry Callahan is with us now. He is the host of the Jerry Callahan podcast, longtime Boston radio legend. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Hey, Buck, how's it going? I'm all right, man, but I'm worried because I think that the lockdown left is already showing us that they have they have no intention of letting us start to go back to normal life until at least next summer. And and others are saying until this time next year already. And it seems to me that no matter how much uh, we can show that the data doesn't support some of the things they're doing and what they're doing is catastrophic for millions of people who are going bankrupt, their businesses are going under. They just don't seem to care, Jerry. They think they've got all the answers. No. It is frightening, Buck, and it's getting worse. And uh, today on my podcast, we developed, we came up with a new word. We've heard of Karens. We all know what a Karen is. Well, now we have Guptas. Guptas are uh, cable TV doctors who don't ever want this to end, who are literally telling us, you will not be liberated. I mean, that, that that's kind of a scary word. It should be, at least. that We're not going to liberate you from all these restrictions and these rules um, and you're going to have to continue wearing a mask and you're going to have to stay out of restaurants and bars and, and don't travel. I mean, he literally says you're not going to be able to travel even after you get the vaccine. Well, wh- what is the point of the vaccine? It's it's bizarre. And I think you and I have uh, agreed on this for a while now that they're just they're never going to let this go. They're going to cont- continue to try to keep us under their control forever. 
Well, that's that's where I wanted to go next, because I think that we should establish a, a kind of philosophical understanding right now of what we're actually facing here, because let's just say, uh, for example, that we were to listen to everything that these various blue check MDs who go on on the different cable channels, the Dr. Fauci, who I, I honestly think is a disaster and and just I don't know if he's not that bright. I don't know what his problem is. His judgment is horrible. I think it's more that he's a coward, actually, than he's dumb. But you look at where this all goes, Jerry, and the moment that we start seeing stories in, let's say, May or June about, you know, there's going to be some relaxation. The cases are way down. We've got, you know, 50 million Americans vaccinated, 100 million Americans vaccinated. I can almost see right now you're going to see stories about. But what about mutations? What about covid 20? What about covid 21? We have to keep these things, you know, ready to go here because the moment and and then I think people realize that if there's a zero risk to your health standard that these people can enforce and shut down your business and keep you away from relatives on the holidays, if that's the standard, they can use that standard going forward for other things, too. Yeah. And just once they're done with the mutations of the virus, you know, and I know what we're moving on to. And uh, John Kerry will be leading the way and it'll be. We have to do these things to control climate change. It's for your own good. And I'm telling you, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Buck, because you're in New York City. I'm in Boston. I'm kind of disappointed in the level of compliance and the just the, the docile submission of so many people. I'm out every day. I'm, I'm running or walking the dog. And when I'm by myself, I'm not wearing a mask because why would I? Let me tell you, everybody else is. They are all going along with this and they're accepting these measures, even if they make no sense. See, I'm, it's one thing if they tell you you must do whatever because of this reason, and they give it and they explain it. Well, here's what happened yesterday in Boston. The mayor shut all gyms for the next three weeks. I mean, they'd already been living with all kinds of uh, restrictions and you, you know, limited hours and space. And he just said, we're going to close all gyms for three weeks. And you know what the reason is? He didn't have one. He literally does not have one. They're not a hotspot. They're not a vector. I could give you the numbers. It's unbelievable. They do not. Uh, uh, there's no evidence that the the, the disease, the virus is transmitted in gyms. He just said, we're locking you down because that's what we did last time. We did a lockdown and we're going to follow that protocol. So he puts people out of work, puts people out of business, essentially, three uh, 10 days before Christmas and doesn't really give them a reason. And if that doesn't outrage I mean, it should outrage everyone as much as it does me and you. And it doesn't. And and that I don't know, that just bothers me. Well, one thing I think, and and we're speaking to Jerry Callahan. He is the host of the Jerry Callahan podcast, longtime Boston radio legend. Uh, Jerry, you know, we've had a couple things coinciding here. One is that the the lockdown left turned this into a kind of anti-Trump thing, that this was about that there was this political separation. And that's why I'm running around now saying, Forget about Trump for this isn't about Trump. This is about freedom. This is about what's right. true. This is about free discourse and individual liberty and businesses that should be surviving. And 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 there's still this mentality, I think, of, oh, no, but that's what Trumpers say or something. It has nothing to do in my mind. This has nothing to do with Trump. This is about what's what's true and what's happening around us. And then there's also the most concerted suppression campaign I, I, I've ever seen in social media. I mean, I, I've been formally reprimanded by the social media giants for sharing CDC studies, for sharing things that I just say, well, look at this. Doesn't this raise the following questions? And they'll put these 
you know, fact checks that aren't actually checking any facts. They just say, well, this lacks context. Dr. Fauci said otherwise. Oh, I'm sorry. So now so now if Dr. Fauci says something, it's a fact check. That's fascinating because he told us at the beginning of the pandemic when this was considered to be far more dangerous, actually, by the individual case fatality that it was. Don't wear masks. That was Fauci this year. But now he's a one man fact check. Oh, that's fascinating. He, he told us on March 9th, Buck, to don't don't hesitate to go on a cruise. Dr. Fauci told us to go, you know, go ahead, go on a cruise, have fun. And by the way, go on Tinder and find love if you're if that's what you're looking for. Dr. Fauci gave you his blessing and we know he's been wrong about everything and yet you can't challenge him. It is bizarre and to me it is it, it flies in the face of, you know, what we see every day on the streets. I'm I'm, I'm walking around, you're walking around, you're seeing these restaurants and businesses and gyms just closed up, boarded up, gone forever. So you try to point out this real ancillary uh, uh, effects here, this this real collateral damage. And it's like, yeah, but, um, you know, it's a virus or, or you know, people, you know, they give you the number, uh, 3,000 dead. And you say, but do you know how many people are unemployed or you know, on drugs or alcohol or their business is destroyed? And it's, it's it's almost irrelevant. They don't want to hear it. They just say, yeah, but the virus. It's like the only thing that matters when your your eyeballs tell you that there's a lot of other things going on that just are really, really bad for, for, for society as a whole. What are you seeing in, in Boston about this? Because in New York, we've had a couple of people, and in New Jersey, too. In New Jersey, there's Atlas Gym. They've been telling everyone they got a $1.2 million right. and counting uh, f- fines from the, the city from the state of New Jersey in New York. We had this uh, this pub and restaurant on Staten Island where the guys wouldn't shut down, even though they were told they were in the red zone or the orange zone or whatever it was. And uh, it, well, we call it, those babies. Pete, Dav- Pete Davidson and I say those they're a bunch of babies. But go ahead. Yeah, I, I heard that guy. It's It's nice if you're in media and making a ton of money and can work remotely and or, you know, not have to worry about a paycheck at all that you get to just tell people that are losing their businesses, losing, you know, decades of work in some cases. And and the other thing that I would say, Jerry, is that when we see this, the chance that any one individual restaurant is a real problem in this pandemic based on New York City's official numbers is very, very low. They say they think there's one percent of the spread they can trace to restaurants. One percent. We're shutting down 10,000 restaurants. I believe. Go ahead. It's, it's much like the gyms. They don't like that Antilles gym. They have zero. They've had zero members test positive. They, and they've had something like a million visits since they opened up illegally. But you're right. Restaurants, it's like 1%. Gyms, it's much, much less than 1%. So again, they're telling you to do things that make no sense. They, they, it's one thing to tell you to do something. It's another thing to not give you a reason it's the same thing here. They came up with these new rules because there was a spike. And we know that most of the cases are at home or in nursing homes or hospitals. So they decide, you know, here's an idea. Let's make everyone go home and get out of the restaurants and get out of the gyms. And here yesterday, the gym uh, restaurants were already operating at a limited capacity. Yesterday, they closed all bar seating. No reason given, just we decided... We have to do something here to make it look like we're uh, trying to protect you from the evil virus. So we're not going to let people sit at the bar anymore. And they're just going to keep coming up with new measures until every damn restaurant is gone. I mean, it's the last number I saw was 5,000 restaurants in the state 
restaurants and bars that have gone under. It's obviously higher in New York and across the country. And it doesn't seem to affect these, you know, these these uh, public you know, office holders who risk nothing, who sacrifice nothing. They just sit there in their office and say, you know what, I'm just going to put another, you know, thousand people out of business and put another countless thousands of people out of work before Christmas. And they don't they don't bat an eye. It's remarkable. It is. Jerry Callahan, I'm with you on this stuff, man. Keep the faith and, and hold strong up there in Boston. Uh, go check out the Jerry Callahan podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Thanks, Buck. Good talking to you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Yesterday, the United States witnessed a medical miracle. The first doses of a COVID vaccine were administered to frontline workers across the country. The president promised a safe and effective vaccine in record time, and President Trump delivered. Earlier this year, we heard from several news outlets and so-called fact checks that President Trump would need, quote, a miracle to be right. That was an NBC News article. We were told, according to Healthline, quote, a vaccine will still take more than a year to develop. USA Today warned us that, quote, despite medical researchers' progress, the vaccine, quote, was more than a year away. And National Geographic even told us that achieving a vaccine within, quote, a year to 18 months would be absolutely unprecedented, end quote. These reports deserve their own fact check. False. Indeed. And we see once again how fact checking is abused by libs how fact checking isn't really about facts it's just a way to try to add additional gravitas to their opinions and to use it to silence opinions they don't like oh we did a fact check and we're right and you're wrong we fact check trump and here's what we found how do you fact check a prediction does anyone ever think about this how do you fact check a prediction does that ever occur to the people that are trying to do this stuff you can't Right. If I told you that the stock market was going to be down 50 percent in six months, you can't fact check me on that. Hopefully that doesn't happen, by the way. Because nobody knows. Not possible to fact check it. So what they do is they call it a fact check. Then they'll say experts disagree. That's not a fact. They conflate these things. They do this intentionally. The media did this about the vaccine. And this, yes, certainly had some impact on the election. We had uh, a lot of people who were being told all year, you can't expect that there'll be a vaccine because the media is telling you that Trump is lying and Trump's never going to get a vaccine. And that's what they were saying. And then we turn around and say, well, hold on a second. What would perception have been? What would people have been thinking was likely to happen by the end of the year uh, in terms of the election? If they believe that a, a vaccine was on the way and would be here in December, as it is, as this this is now the fact is that it is here. Do, do they feel any uh, sense of remorse or any sense of embarrassment for getting this wrong? No, of course not. They did it for a reason. And unfortunately, the reason was to stop Trump from winning this election. So they view this probably as a, a big success. They got away with yet another lie. Russia collusion was a lie, but did it work for the Democrats? 
Trump is trying to destroy the post office was a lie. But did it work? And now we have the vaccine coming this year. They, they said it would never happen. Who was right? Who was wrong? Got to pay attention to this stuff. Got to remember it, too, uh, because these are the people who will turn around now. I mean, this is the same news media that is going to say that we should all, you know, respect our journos. And they're going to try this whole game of, oh, now now we can finally trust them. Now we can finally trust them. Um, no, we actually cannot trust them. We cannot. And it's because they've shown us who they are. Here's among the the most preposterous, uh, the most vain, ignorant and worthless of the journos, because he's just a journalist, man. Jim, Jim Acosta, he's just a journalist. This guy managed to build a career around Trump hatred and then acts like he's honest and, and ethical as a journo. I mean, it's absurd. This is what he yells at the White House press secretary after she leaves the podium like the sniveling little coward he is. Play three. Really interesting turn of events uh, and good for those who covered what was a story all along and not Russia disinformation. Isn't it, isn't it hypocritical for you to accuse others of disinformation when you spread it every day? You hear that nasty little it's, it's like he's a, like a mean girl in high school. Isn't it hypocritical for you to say this when you spread disinformation every day? Uh, this is this is CNN's White House correspondent, senior White House correspondent. But we're supposed to take him seriously now. I, I don't know if anyone takes Don Lemon seriously, but here he is talking about the White House press secretary 13. Still pursuing on ongoing litigation at the moment. Did you know she also works with a girl? Bye. I mean, so there's another girl. Bye. Bye bye. That's all he's got for her. That's that's how respectful they are of the White House press secretary. That's how respectful they are of the process and the sacred norms of our democracy. These journalists make a mockery of their profession on a regular basis. And then they turn around and they expect the rest of us to give them respect. They expect us to treat their pronouncements as though they don't come from a place of ignorance, partisanship, bitterness, vanity. Yeah, those are the defining characteristics of the modern political media these days that's what they actually show us day in and day out so i think we should treat them as such i have absolutely no desire no plan no willingness to pretend that the journos are somehow going to get better in the next four years i think we all know they're only going to get worse and they deserve to be held to account and that means substantial amounts of mockery and ridicule because that's what really bothers them. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Georgia Senate runoffs just a few weeks away. As I've been telling you, this is absolutely critical. I want to get the most up-to-date information on this possible to all of you. For that, we bring in our friend Ryan Gerdusky. He's the author of They're Not Listening, now, the elites created a national populist revolution, and he is a political uh, political big brain. He's going to tell us what's going on here. Ryan, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. What is happening right now with the early vote in Georgia? Tell us. So as of right now, 750, as of this morning, 715,000 uh, 715, uh, people have voted in the state of Georgia. Uh, Georgia is one of the one of the states, like many, that do not register people by party. So we don't know who, what 
person's party has come and vote. But we do know their uh, we do know their age and their race. Um, so about fifty four point five percent are uh, have been a non Hispanic white. Thirty three point one percent have been non Hispanic black. Um, most of the people are uh, four nine percent of all those who have voted are over the age of sixty five. And most interestingly, about eighteen thousand, a little over eighteen thousand five hundred, are vote people who did not vote in the twenty twenty general election. They're new voters. So, how's it looking right now for Leffler and Purdue, the Republican candidates? Well, ideally for Republicans, you want the black vote because blacks vote ninety percent or above. For the Democrats, you would like the black vote to be under thirty percent. They're at thirty-three point one. It's been dropping every day. It was over thirty, I think seven, thirty-eight percent the first day. Um, so the energy and momentum for a huge surge of Stacey Abrams voters, especially in the Atlanta metro area, has kind of diminished somewhat slightly um, as days go by. Now, one thing I've learned uh, covering Georgia is that. Stacey Abrams has a tendency to take credit for everything, either she does it or she doesn't do it. Um, you mean you so mean the governor of uh, the governor of Georgia, Ryan? <laughs> the, go- the, the, fa- the fake governor of Georgia, of Georgia yeah. So, uh, so she was talking about how she was getting one point, I guess, three million absentee ballots out. A majority of those actually came from senior citizens, military personnel, and disabled who automatically get ballots. So um, they were not anyone that she was requesting for a ballot. They were people who would get ballots normally under Georgia law. Um, as of right now, 1.6 million people total have requested absentee ballots, which by the way is crazy high. It's gonna be a huge, huge, huge runoff election, much higher than past runoff elections. So this, so just so we, we can sort of some of the top line here, um, we have a Georgia runoff that is already showing that people are very they're, they're very focused on this. Uh, Ryan, I, I'm hearing from some folks on the right who don't want to say this that much publicly, but they they are saying the Democrats could actually steal these two seats, that 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 could happen. And everyone needs to take that very seriously. What do you say to that? Uh, the law in Georgia is probably the election laws in Georgia are probably some of the worst in the country, um, as far as I could tell. So. Uh, so, for instance, after the um, after it came out that Joe Biden was ahead in the vote count, Donald Trump requested a recount, which is perfectly legal for a loser to look for a recount. And they found between three or four thousand more Trump votes during the recount uh, in Georgia, which gave him a little bit of an edge, but it didn't put him over the number he needed to win. Now. If you remember, uh, David Perdue was the winner of that election, but he didn't win enough to, uh, he didn't get over 50% to avoid a runoff. So I simply asked, well, how much of those three or 4,000 did David Perdue get? And they said, oh, well, we can't count those because only the loser can request a recount. So they could not count any other of the votes besides the Donald Trump votes. So David Perdue very well could have ended up getting over 50% of the vote had he been able to request a recount, but he can't because of Georgia. State. So so he may. So then um, to be clear, this Georgia, is not even a little bit beyond the realm of possibility. What you're laying out here by the numbers, Purdue might have actually won enough to not even be in a runoff. But because of the Georgia, because of the Georgia laws, uh, they weren't able they weren't able to look for those irregularities that they did find for Trump that might have put Purdue over. So there's no runoff. Correct. Yes. Unbelievable. Correct. And the Republicans would have the Senate. Yes. It is it is the most insane series of laws you've ever heard of in your life. 
Um, a big problem that I've had, I've raised to a lot of people, is these uh, drop-off, uh, these these ballot drop-offs uh, that they've been having. They have 20 in one, in one county alone, um, and the question comes up of ballot harvesting. Now, it is illegal in the state of Georgia to ballot harvest. You can't deliver any other ballot besides your own. Um, but the problem is, is and, and under 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 the law, written in the words in the Georgia law, is that um, you have to have two people witness you dropping off a ballot. Well, now because of COVID, they made these in, these draw uh, these ballot uh, these ballot drop off boxes where you just walk into a box, you deliver it. But there's nobody watching these boxes to make sure that only one ballot is going in there at a time. Um, they have a camera in these boxes, but the camera is only looking to see if someone, uh, you know, destroys the boxes, not if somebody delivers 50 or 60 uh, ballots at one single time. There is so much money in Georgia, by the way, right now that Karl Rove could hire somebody to sit in front of every ballot drop off place all day long, every single day um, to make sure that no one's dropping off 60 or 70 ballots 30 times a day. But no one's doing that as of right now. We're speaking to Ryan Gerdusky, author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created a National Populist Revolution. Um, and he's a political analyst. R- Ryan, tell me this. What is the GOP not doing in Georgia? I mean, l- let's let's put aside the, the issue of fraud for a second. There's also the possibility, it seems, that maybe they could win these two Senate seats fair and square based on all the money and attention that these races are getting. Uh, what do you make of that risk? And what would you want to see the GOP and these candidates and Trump and Pence do to make sure that we don't lose Senate control because I, I can handle whatever whatever the outcome of the presidential election is. I feel like we can weather that storm. It gets a lot harder to weather it if the Democrats have the House and the Senate. Yeah. So, I mean, there's I mean, I can't overemphasize how much money and, and people there are right now in Georgia. So far in Georgia, the Republicans, not the Democrats, just the Republicans have knocked about six million doors, which is a basically every one of their voters five times over. Um, they've done a tremendous GOTV job. There's tons of money being poured in. One of the major problems of the Trump uh, campaign was that they did not have any money in the Chattanooga media market. Now, the Chattanooga, Chattanooga media market is only 2% of Georgia, but it's in the most Republican area of Georgia. So all 2% are heavily Republicans. In the 9th Congressional Marge, Congress, now Congressman Marjorie Green, Marjorie Taylor Green's congressional district, uh, the second most Republican district of the state and the most Republican area of that congressional district. She had a voter, she did not have a Democrat opponent in the general election. And there was about 70,000 fewer voters in her district than in the neighboring district. And those are two of the most Republican areas of the state. Um, so I hope that those mistakes, and I've reached out to um, several super PACs working in the state, and I've told them, you know, you need to make sure you, yeah, I, I know it's only 2% of the state, but it is an important 2% of the state for Republicans that you should be advertising. Um, I know Mitch McConnell and, and Carl Rove are spending a lot of time and energy down there as well, as well as Donald Trump Jr. Um, the president had a huge turnout. Mike Pence's turnout has been fa- fairly low, honestly, right now. It has not been that strong uh, as far as turning out major a lot of people to his rallies goes. Um, but they, I mean, the problem is, is the messaging that Trump gave early on that don't vote early, vote day of. I think was the wrong message to really have. I think that voting early is really, really important um, because you don't know what's going to happen on election day. You get sick, your kid gets sick. Yeah, there's a snowstorm, there's a hurricane, whatever the case is, um, and you can't get to the polls. Um, and Democrats are definitely utilizing this early ballot system. Uh, as far as the problems that went on last time, 
Uh, I think that there is a major issue right now with the Secretary of State's office. It's not just the Secretary of State who's incompetent, which he is. He's basically just a rich guy who wanted to run for governor one day. So he ran for Secretary of State as a platform to then run for governor with no experience being Secretary of State. The Deputy Secretary of State, her last name is Fouche. I forget her first name. I think it's Diane, but it might not be Diane. It's Fouche's last name for that. She's been making a lot of the calls and she's incredibly incompetent. Her big plan earlier this year was she wanted to have Cardi B cut commercials for the state to ask for poll watchers. Now, if you're a Republican, what kind of poll watchers is Cardi B going to attract to sit there and make sure everything's going okay for your election? Um, this is what this is what the state is right now in the Secretary of State's office. Um, so there's very little confidence there. Uh, and basically, since the senators have both called on him to resign because of his incompetency with this election, um, he has kind of been blowing a lot of people off. So would you say it's on track or are you concerned now about these two Senate seats that will determine control of the United States Senate for the next two years? Well, I'm concerned. I mean, the, the landmark poll just came out. It's a pretty good polling firm in Georgia as far as polls go, which a lot of them have been off, but it's a pretty good polling firm. And they both had Loeffler and Purdue up by one point. Um, the attack ads against Purdue are very, very effective, and he's not been able to really respond to them. And the fact of the insider trading and selling so many stocks, um, it's been very, 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 very effective. Now, that being said, Ossoff is a known quantity in Georgia because of his congressional run, his high-profile congressional run, and he's pretty well hated throughout Georgia. Um, nonetheless, if they're able to sit there and surge these people out of the inner city, uh, we'll see. I will say the one thing going for them, going for Loeffler and Purdue that was not going for Trump is they do not alienate suburban white voters in the same capacity. Uh, Purdue and, and Loeffler both overperformed Trump and well, really Purdue because Loeffler had another Republican, but a lot of well, Purdue overperformed Trump in the sixth and seventh congressional district, which are the two suburban Atlantic congressional districts that flipped from Republican to Democrat since 2018. Just, just switching gears before we let you go, we're speaking to Ryan Gerdusky, author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created a National Populist Revolution. Uh, Ryan, you and I have talked about this before, but I want you to lay it out for everybody in the Post-election analysis here, there was a problem for Trump with uh, what was the primary? Was it white working class voters not turning out enough or was it white college educated suburban voters who either wouldn't vote for him or voted for Biden? So the main problem with the Trump campaign was their idea always was, we're listen, we're going to lose white college educated voters. It's kind of baked in the bread. So we're gonna make up for that by getting more minority voters out. Now in a state like Florida and a state like Texas, that that idea worked and it worked very, very well. They did an excellent job. And they did an excellent job, by the way, in almost every major city, Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, uh, Cleveland, El Paso, Miami, all of these cities, uh, especially those that experienced surges of, of the Black Lives Matter riots, um, did vote more Republican, which was great. Uh, the problem is in places like Wisconsin, Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, there just were not enough of those voters to make up for it. The only way you were going to make up for that surge of non-college educated, uh, of surge of college educated whites 
voting Democrat was by getting non-college educated whites to vote Republican and more of them and registering them. There was never a ground game in place at all by any Republicans for the last four years. And I brought this idea to uh, Brad Parscale back in 2017. I said there are 47 million non-college educated white Americans who are not registered to vote. If you register 10% of them, you don't have a problem. And mo most of those people, by the way, live in the Midwest. They live in the swing states that Trump flipped from Obama. So it's not impossible to sit there and win every one of those states all over again. There is, this, this is the truth about campaigns when it comes to voter registrations. It's very difficult and there's not a lot of money in it. So there's not a lot of consultants who want to go run a voter registration uh, organization. Um, and looking how Brad Parscale uh, made a lot of money off that campaign. It seems like he kind of took that advice. There's not a lot of money in voter registration. Let's look at doing other things. Um, so they chased phantom Hispanic voters in New Mexico for three years. Um, and and lo and behold, I mean, it just didn't work out. I'll say this one statistic for you before we go, because I know we're running out of time. Uh, there were 23 counties that flipped from Obama to Trump in Wisconsin. 22 of those 23 counties Trump increased his percentage and they had over 90% turnout. Basically everybody you possibly want to do, they did great ground game, but the number of registered voters in those 23 counties decreased by 8,000, even though the population increased because there was no effort on the part of the GOP to register new voters in those areas, especially those who've kind of fallen by the wayside, don't believe the politicians helped them. That is the big, the, like the Roseanne voter, uh, the shameless voter, those people, those kind of characters who are in our country uh, who feel like government doesn't respond to their needs. They're the ones who need to be tapped into. And there was no effort on part of the GOP, the RNC, the Trump campaign, thanks to Jared Kushner, uh, to reach out to those voters. They would have made the absolute difference. And uh, voter fraud aside, he would have been able to win uh, a bunch of those states that he lost. Ryan Gerdusky, check out his book, They're Not Listening, available on Amazon. Ryan, always insightful, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Shots have been administered. Uh, hope is on the way. And our job here is to guarantee that there's enough money to facilitate the delivery, as well as to do other things that we can agree on. And as I've said repeatedly, number one, we're not leaving here without a COVID package. It's not going to happen. We're going to stay here until we get a COVID package no longer, no, long, <clears throat> no matter how long uh, it takes. We'll be here until we get a COVID package. They better get a COVID package. It's really, a, it's so shameful that we're at this point. We've gone this many months where the federal government, I'm just going to say it, the Congress, and even at some levels, the administration. Yeah, that's right. The administration not getting enough support to people who are suffering in these in these states where the lockdown libs are just making everything impossible. What are they supposed to do? You're not allowed to work. Not everyone has savings to you know endure these tough times. Right. So what is supposed to happen now? What's the reality of people's lives who don't get this? Don't get this assistance. McConnell uh, tweeted this out earlier today. The American people need more help. We need vaccine distribution money. We need to re-up the Paycheck Protection Program to save jobs. We need to continue to provide for laid-off Americans. Congressional leaders are on both sides are working until we get this done. I mean, the, the fact that here we are, it's, it's almost Christmas. They're almost going on vacation. They still haven't worked out this package because the, the 
vain, selfish, conniving Democrats and the somewhat ineffectual and, and, you know, incompetent Republicans can't figure this thing out. It really, really makes you wonder. Uh, They they impoverish people. They destroy their businesses. They say they're going to send help and then they don't send help. And they wonder why we have the feelings we do about politicians and about politics in this country. I'm sure they'll get some kind of a deal done or I hope they'll get some kind of a deal done. But that it's taken this long in itself is a scandal and a disgrace. And we should remember that. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clearly, these numbers that I went over a moment ago, they're going in the wrong direction. Uh, We are just on the verge of a huge breakthrough with the vaccine, but we're also dealing with a second wave. We've got to beat it back. We've got to protect lives. We've got to protect our hospitals. So I think, unfortunately, I don't say it with anything but sorrow, but I do think it's needed. We're going to need to do uh, some kind of shutdown in the weeks ahead, something that resembles the pause we were in in the spring. Shutdown number two in NYC. And, oh, it's coming to a city near you, too, friends, wherever you are across the country. You're going to see more of this, more calls for this. Seems so strange to me that shutdowns work so well or lockdowns work so well that they're always followed by shutdowns. What, what's that all about? We've got somebody who's willing to ask these questions, look at the data, tell us what's really happening. Jordan Schachtel is with us now. He is an investigative journalist based in D.C. Jordan, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Buck. What do you make of what's happening right now? I mean, just give us your, your broad stroke thoughts on what we're seeing here, where you still have politicians say, They act like this is some fight that we're going to win, meaning that we're going to stop this virus if only we just do what they say. And I want to know how many times across the world, not even just in the U.S., just in New York, across the world, we have to see that it doesn't work like that. Yeah, this is a never ending war. It's like the, you know, the war in Afghanistan. And now we're in the, uh, you know, the vaccine edition of of this uh, process and this war that we're fighting. And I, I think that what's been really interesting that's come out the past couple of days, you see people like Fauci um, and the usual suspects and all these lockdown governors saying, oh, wait, hold on, hold on a second. You can't just return to normal life. You know, we need we need to get 80, 90 percent of this population the vaccine and then we can start thinking about it. And of course, this is without any of the consent of the governed whatsoever. You know, no one has voted on any of these policies and they, they want to continue the insanity as long as possible, it seems. And what are you finding? I mean, what are some of the areas in your research that you're coming upon where you just feel like people need to know more about certain facts and certain realities we're dealing with here with COVID? So one of the really big things that we're going to see with this vaccine deployment is it's really going to expose how the COVID testing process is so uh, incredibly broken and that most of these testing manufacturers don't actually test for COVID-19, they're just trying to you know, ring up some positives because this has become, I just wrote about this, the testing industry has become a $250 million per day revenue industry just in the United States. So you can you know, push that out globally and it's a multi-billion dollar per day industry and it's becoming almost too big to fail. And what we're going to see with the vaccine deployment is that people who have been inoculated Uh, from the virus may still test positive because, as we know, a lot of these tests don't work. 
So it's going to create a lot of confusion among the public. And I don't see any of the people um, in government or these you know, the highly touted bureaucrats talking about this issue because it seems like with these big pharma companies, there's just too much money to be made. There's so much corruption. And we're just going to have to deal with this mess um, until people eventually you know, organize and try to take the power back. What, what do we know about the fail rate on these tests? Yeah, it, it, it's incredibly high. What they do is um, it's similar to, I guess the analogy you could use is a microscope. You know, how many magnifications? Uh, if, if you go, you know, 10x on a microscope, you're not going to see, you know, these, these tiny fragments. And if you go 100x, you're going to see a bunch of stuff. But if you're going 100x on these tests, you're not necessarily seeing live virus. You're seeing a bunch of fragments of stuff. And what happens with these um, ultra-sensitive testing processes is that they're finding a bunch of you know, dead virus or you know, some other fragments of coronaviruses. And that's enough for them because they, they set it up this way to label these cases, to diagnose people as COVID-19 cases, but they were never really you know, sick where they never really acquired the actual virus in the first place. Now, so, can I ask, is, is this like official record and no one just talks yeah. about it, or is this contested? Oh, no, this is this is how they're doing things. Um, so it's called a cycle threshold. People could Google that. And the cycle threshold for identifying um, these viruses is much lower. You know, the, when you get to these amazingly high levels, like a lot of these tests are doing 38, 39, 40, uh, times amplification instead of, you know, the science really says that it should be below 30 based on, uh, you know, the work I've done. But what they're, they're finding is, you know, they're, they're purposely cranked up to a point where they're finding all these positives. And, you know, my hypothesis is that they're doing it on purpose because they know the information is out there and they're doing it on purpose because you're not going to make any money if you're, if your products, you know, are testing and then everyone's coming back negative. So, I think it's a really become a malicious, corrupt industry. And unfortunately, it's, it's encouraged by organizations like the FDA, which are just rubber stamping these, these labs and these you know, other healthcare organizations. And there's no accountability whatsoever in this process. And you know, it, they call it the case-demic for a reason. It's because we just have an out-of-control uh, case labeling problem. And it's kind of propping up this pandemic because on the other end of the spectrum, you have most state health departments, if anyone tests positive um, and, and dies within 30 days of a COVID-19 diagnosis, they're labeled COVID-19 no matter what. So when you have all these false positives, it's basically propping up an entire you know, pandemic industry at this point and also giving an excuse for these lockdown governors to just continue to keep us locked up in perpetuity. And a vaccine isn't going to solve that problem. We're speaking to Jordan Schachtel. He's an investigative a journalist based in D.C. He's been looking very closely at COVID. Jordan, uh, I, I get a lot of heat from people for just even asking questions about masks. Um, and I understand the theory behind how masks work and in the certain situations where masks could work. And I, and I know that, the, you know, that this is now a very touchy subject for a lot of people. I would ask you to explain explain this to me based on the data that you've seen and all the numbers that you've crunched. In New York City, we're told that there is, this is the official New York City Health Department number, 1.7% of COVID spread in this current wave comes from indoor dining and restaurants. So that's a situation where people are in a, an enclosed space, circulated the same air, 
with no mask on while they're eating for hours at a time. That's 1.7% of the, of the spread. Yet I walk around the streets outside here, and I'd say 90 to 95% of people outdoors walking alone primarily have masks on. Where is the science? What is the study that suggests that outdoor open air spread of a person alone walking around a major city is at risk for COVID? Yeah, there, there is none. Uh, a lot of us have been looking into this for months, and it's, it's total mythology. Um, it's based on this notion that there's you know, these silent spreaders, but this idea has never actually been proven. And as you just said when you talked about the data of you know, the New York City Health Department when they're, tracked, when they're doing this useless contact tracing and asking people, you know, how, what did you do in the last couple of weeks? And some people have went to a restaurant but only you know one percent or whatever could identify the restaurant as being possibly the source of infection. Um, there's no science behind this asymptomatic spread stuff. Uh, it's just pure speculation. Um, there, there's no all of these scientific papers. Um, they don't really track asymptomatic spread. They they model asymptomatic spread based on the hypothesis that it actually exists. But that's the whole basis for masks, too. So we're doing all of these. We're basically um, unwilling participants in a countrywide and global uh, medical experiment with these masks. But the whole idea behind asymptomatic spread hasn't been proven. So the whole thing is just ridiculous. And I'm already seeing and this is this is common now. You'll hear them say, even if you're vaccinated, you have to continue all of the measures, the protective measures that we institute. Never mind the fact that protective measures are, are on at shaky ground at best in many cases. Uh, but e- even after you're vaccinated, because we don't know, comma, but theoretically you could still get infected and pass the virus to other people, even though you won't have symptoms yourself. I mean, to this, I just want to say, what the hell are they talking about? Where else in where else in pandemic or public health is this the policy is this the idea we don't know if this thing could happen but we're going to make you do stuff because you know theoretically maybe it could happen and also on, on asymptomatic spread the 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 guidance for dealing with flu for example is always you know if you have symptoms stay away from people if you're sick stay away from people and i'm fine with an if you're sick you stay away if you're sick you quarantine you know etc that makes perfect sense to me no problem with that whatsoever but you bring up the asymptomatic spread issue and we've been led. I mean, the, the mantra now is that asymptomatic spread is almost a majority of the spread that's going. How is that possible? Yeah, it, it's total speculation. And when they're when they're trying to make policies based on unknowns, that's just so insane and suicidal. Like there's also a possibility that, you know, when I when I get in my car, um, I'm going to get hit by a bus. You know, that could happen to anyone. But you don't live your life based on um potential outcomes that could happen when you you know go outside of your safety zone people need to be allowed to live their lives so the idea that you know because you've been because the vaccine isn't proven to uh you know slow this uh mythical idea of asymptomatic spread that we all need to keep uh, our businesses shut down and our you know stay at home and forever because these people are telling us it's amazing how far they've moved the goalpost i mean a guy like fauci in march was was saying, oh, you know, just just stay home for two weeks. And now 
Fauci did an interview today saying that, oh, yeah, we're going to have to wear masks and social distance until next winter. Not this winter. We're going to have to go till, uh, you know, 2022 now. Like what these people have been given so much power that it's basically you know, <laughs> driven us, uh, you know, society completely insane because we keep following these people re recommendations. They keep getting power. They keep getting the spotlight. They're loving it and, and they don't want to give it back. And uh, the reality tells us that we're just going to have to take it back from them and ignore them at this point. Jordan, uh, when, when do you think that will happen? I mean, one of my big disappointments, and I keep saying this to people that come on who share a willingness to to be reality based about all this COVID stuff and, and ask important questions and understand the trade offs that are being made. I mean, I'm here in New York. I feel like New Yorkers. Well, if we were told if we were told, sorry, guys, mask up social distance and and intermittent lockdowns for the next five years. That's what the Fouch tells us. The Fouch has spoken. You'd have a lot of people say, yeah, five years. Got to do it. I mean, maybe a majority of people in this city, which is just madness. Yeah, the people here are insane, too. <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm going to Florida for, for a couple of weeks th this winter. And, and Florida is like the perfect example of I think it's going to have to happen in pockets. Uh, and with people that are lucky enough to have responsible leaders like you know, Governor, Governor DeSantis in Florida. In New York City and D.C., 90 percent of the people have been propagandized by this idiocy. And I thought in the beginning that after a couple months, people would wake up. But, you know, it's been like a year now. So I'm thinking that maybe my my uh, my read on human psychology was just off, unfortunately, and that people are willing to be programmed to, you know, just live live in fear. You know, it's just like this giant social psychosis of Stockholm syndrome. And it's just, it, it's unfortunate that people are just acting as cattle. And, and it's, it's funny you, you, you bring that up. That and I, I was just telling, I was just telling this audience yesterday that it does remind me of, of a terrorist hostage taking situation where when we just get a little glimpse, you know, when the terrorist, you know, throws you the, the crusts of cold pizza that have been brought to them by the uh, hostage negotiators you know, the people that have been taken hostage, they're grateful for it, right? Because they're, oh my gosh, they're they're starving, right? Or when they're allowed to go to the bathroom or when, when they're just treated with any basic human dignity, there actually will be this sense of gratitude to the hostage taker instead of, oh my God, I should, you know, take the Uzi out of your hands. And, you know, they, they, they go to this other place sometimes. And that's just the way human psychology works for a lot of people. I think that we're facing that with these lockdowns where, oh, okay, well, well, for, for a month we'll be able to go to the gym and, and then maybe they'll shut it down again, but at least they're trying. I want to say no, <laughs> they're not trying. They're not making the right decisions. Yeah, it, it's just at this point, my, my patience is non-existent with, with these type of people. I, I know that they've been psychologically pushed into this, this cave of fear, but, you know, enough is enough. I'm not going to... Um, I feel like my, my patience has just worn out. I, I don't, you know, if, if people keep wanting to wear masks outside and, and think that they're, you know, doing something virtuous, that then good on them. At this point, I think we just need to build a coalition around, you know, the, the people who are still sane and try to make a difference with those folks because it's been almost a year and these people have been so manipulated and propagandized. And if they're going to be, you know, spineless cowards for the rest of their lives, then they can go ahead and do so. I, I just I'm at that point right now where we just have to figure out how we can create free societies in pockets. And the, the people of you know New York and D.C. are basically at this point, if they, if they are not going to do anything, then we're not going to you know, continue to fight for them.
Jordan Schachtel, investigative journalist down in D.C. Jordan, God bless over the holidays, man. We'll talk to you in the new year. Thanks for having me. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. First thing, it's not going to be like turning a light switch on and off. It's not going to be overnight. It's going to be gradual. And I think we will know when we see the level of infection in the country at a dramatically lower level than it is right now, that we can start gradually tiptoeing towards normality. I don't believe we're going to be able to throw the masks away and forget about physical separation and congregate settings for a while, probably likely until we get into the late fall and early next winter. Uh, but I think we can do it. Another year, folks. That's Fauci right now. Another another year of this. That's what he's saying. You think that's fair minded? Now, notice he says it's not a light switch. It's gradual. Why? I thought this was about saving lives and that if you disagree with any of the measures being taken, you don't care about lives. So we should take no risk then. So we should have maximum lockdown. Why not just tell everybody there's stay at home orders across the country for the next 90 days? Can't leave your house once a week to get groceries like they had in Italy uh, and find and imprisoned if you don't listen. Now, of course, I think that's all insane, but I'm just saying what, what's there? Oh, because that's just too much. But I thought this was about lives and you can't argue with them because that's that's the way they set this whole thing up. Uh, it turns out that there are restrictions on freedom. It turns out there are trade offs that they can demand, even with their oh, it's about lives formulation that are too extreme. So we are negotiating over what is acceptable, even though they think that we are just supposed to be dictated to. We are constantly in a state of figuring out where we draw these lines, figuring out what's too much, what's enough. And I think that anyone who believes that we should go through this for another year is just is just out of their mind. Just out of their mind. Um, there's no reason to believe that that's what we should have to do, especially given that the vaccine, 50% of the deaths are in, it's not among senior citizens. It's in senior citizen homes, which means that if we get the vaccines to people in senior citizens' homes, we'll cut the death rate in half. In half. That's by the numbers. That's by the statistics. And then we can focus on getting it to the at-risk population. If we can't cut the death rate of COVID-19 by 75% within 60 days, we're doing something wrong. That should be our goal. And, and when this is down 75 80%, you're going to tell me we can't start to live life again? Not on my watch. We're going to fight on this one. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Roll call. Remember to go to BuckSexton.com and check in on our latest posts and stories. You can also listen to the podcast of the Buck Sexton show there. So if anyone ever is like, hey, how do I listen to Buck Sexton or who is this guy? Just tell them to go to BuckSexton.com. That is the move. That's what we got to do. And we also uh, want you to follow on all the various social media accounts or whichever ones you use. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Parler, of course. 
We're on Instagram. We're all over the place. So uh, even on TikTok, I know some of you say, oh, Buck, the Chinese are spying on you. I already told you they have my they have my OPM file officially. They, they have it. They took it. OK, so they already know a lot about the Buckster. I'm not particularly worried. And whatever I put what I put on TikTok is China is a problem. So I think they they already know that they already know that. Producer Mark, you ready for this crazy snowstorm we're about to get walloped with in the New York, New Jersey area? I don't plan on going outside. Uh, they're saying two feet of snow. Yeah. That's a lot of snow. Not having a car right now is just great. I, I do remember when I lived in uh, central Massachusetts in the Pioneer Valley for four years of college, that after a really, after a really big snowstorm, get, going out to your car, because it was always freezing outside. It's not like it snows and then it's 60 degrees, because then obviously it would melt anyway. But it's not like it snows, then you have a nice day, and you can just, you know, you always end up going out, because you got to usually use your car when the snow is still happening, and you, you, you got to take, like, the, what do you call those things, you know, that you keep in the trunk, the uh, the brush? Yeah, the, the car brush. The, yeah. the scraper? The, scraper, the brush yeah. scraper. That's what, do you have one of those? Yeah, of course, my wife still has one in her car. Yeah, you got to get there. I will say, though, it's satisfying when you break that big chunk of ice on your windshield and get to throw it off. You know, you feel like a real man. I used to love the snow and stuff as a kid. But once you have to shovel it yourself and clean off your car, no, it's not satisfying. It's not fun. It's a my little hands get cold. And, and, you know, then I got to wear gloves, but the gloves don't allow me the same dexterity I would normally have. Yep, yep, yep. Actually, the only time in my life I was towed was during a snowstorm in Amherst, Massachusetts. They towed my car. My my my. Uh, I had a wood paneled Buick Roadmaster. Those of you who don't know, if you see one of those now on the road, they're actually a, they're considered a classic, and I mean that they're actually they're listed as a classic car now. That's because they're from the early 1990s, so we're going back now 30 years. Those cars isn't that like the quintessential like 80s 90s American car? So so in the 80s there was this wood paneled kind of a uh, look like a station wagon, but a little different called the Wagoneer. A lot of people had Wagoneers. Those are pretty cool. Like I would drive a Wagoneer today. Um, but there was also there was I think an Oldsmobile station wagon that was very very. Pop Oldsmobile station wagon is very popular. Does Oldsmobile even exist anymore? I don't think it does. I don't think so. I don't think I don't think so. Um, but I was in the Roadmaster, which is not quite the car in the Chevy Chase vacation movies, which I think is the ultimate wood paneled station wagon. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? The, the, the you know, National Lampoons. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I had a what car does Chevy Chase, though, drive? Um, in in the vacation movies, you know, that's, I will that's in a moment. A wagon queen family truckster. That's what he was driving. It was created specifically for the film. It was based on a 1979 Ford LTD Country Squire station wagon. So that's so that's the real one. The 1979 Ford LTD Country Squire station wagon. That's the ultimate wood paneled station wagon you know that wood paneling on the side by the way uh whoever thought that was a good idea why would you want a car made of wood you know it doesn't seem safe or anything logical right that doesn't seem like i don't want it to turn into what all those splinters become little missiles and go through my face in an accident that's not good i mean i would imagine I it's, it's just for decoration but yeah it's still. not real wood obviously that would be well actually i think originally there might have been some wood in there 
But it, it later it was just like a veneer, kind of a plastic substance that looked like what. Anyway, so that's what I drove and I got towed during a snowstorm. I'll never forget that. I was like, what? But it was because the plows on. This. It's the only time I've ever been towed. I thank God I've avoided getting towed in New York City because that's a traumatic experience. Well, you don't have a car when you live in New York. Yeah, I did for years. I had that really? station wagon in New York City. I parked it on the streets. It was uh, how? It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I had to basically sleep in the car in the mornings and deal with the, uh, the 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 street cleaners as they came by. It was not fun. All right, let's get to our uh, roll call here as producer Mark and I hunker down in our respective uh, domiciles for what is going to be the biggest snowstorm in New York City in 10 years, they're saying. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Ryan writes in, hey, Buck, I'm listening to your show on Freedom 93.7, blasting the Freedom Hut's message of truth. Thank you, Ryan. Love when we hear from our Colorado team, Buck. For whatever it's worth, I agree with your assessment on A.G. Barr being a good man that did everything reasonably possible. I also agree we must assess this position we find ourselves in post-election with truth. Keep on keeping it real with what we're up against, brother. Ryan, thanks so much. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm an A.G. Barr uh, advocate and supporter still. I, I don't I don't go with this stuff that he didn't do. I think he saved the Trump presidency. They Weissman was going to try to call for prosecution of him and or impeachment of him. But Barr stepped in and headed them off at the pass with the political hit. Barr saved this administration from the Russia collusion trap. He saved them. And that's why they were so upset when he came out and gave that press conference and talked through what was in the report and, and talked about the executive summary. So let's not forget that. You shouldn't forget that. I don't think it would be fair to do so. And I think he's an ethical guy. I think he, you know, he stepped in on the Roger Stone thing. People are forgetting right now. I know there's a lot of upset people out there because of what's going on with Trump. But Barr, Barr was an asset to this administration. And he was a, a highly competent and solid attorney general. This is not a Jeff Sessions situation, friends. It's not. And people who are telling you otherwise, that's, uh, that's just an unfair read. In my opinion. All right. Next up here, David. Hey, Buck, the Challenger Netflix documentary is amazing. The top engineers basically knew it was going to happen. Really sad. Oh, so this is about the Challenger disaster. I didn't I thought it was I didn't realize that that was the because uh, I haven't there been a whole lot of Challenger things that have been sent up in the air. Or was the only yeah, the one when you say the Challenger? What, what do you think of? Yeah, I know that was a dumb thing I just said a lot, but I really did think I was like, oh, yeah, the Challenger, like, you know, maybe one of the happy missions that it went on, not the yeah, one. Nobody watches it... a documentary on happy stuff. Yeah, I know. I know. Even the octopus, man, the octopus friend. I was like, but the octopus is going to die. I got so sad. I got so sad. I eat octopus. I love it. it tastes delicious. But I got so sad when the octopus was dying. Really did. Really did. did like choked me up, man. I've never... I can't, but I can't watch. Any any human to any human to animal friendship, you know, I mean, with dogs, I'm a total mess. But any human to animal friendship, you know, uh, you know, it really, really, uh, really gets to me, which is kind of what you think about. It. I'll watch a movie where there's like bad guys getting shot all over the place, like human beings getting blown away with all kinds of weaponry and everything. And I'm just like, you know, hey, man, you know, it's tough. Human beings are a rough species. And then I watch like. A dog gets cancer in a movie or something, and you know he he has to be put down. And I oh, man, I'm I'm a mess. Can't handle it. Well, now I know, I know your weakness. Is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like Gordon Gecko says in the movie Wall Street. You know about wasps. They love animals. They hate people, which is not really true, but it's kind of a smug way of putting it. 
We do, we do love animals. Although I'm a Catholic, I'm not a Protestant, so I'm technically not a wasp. Um. Anyway, David, I will check out the Challenger documentary. I'll probably watch it with the Snow Princess with the big snow that's coming. And some have asked why I call her that. It's because she comes from one of the snowiest parts of the United States. And she's like very she loves snow. Producer Mark, how does Mrs. Mark feel about snow? Because because Snow Princess is obviously based on her name alone. uh, She loves it. Yeah, it's an inconvenience. She loves it's it's like her environment. What were we saying? It's an inconvenience to her and most people. Yeah. So she's not like, yay, look at all the snowflakes. No. It's amazing and beautiful. It's, and, you know, oh, no, I have to shovel this and clean it yeah, off yeah, my yeah. car. She takes yeah. a more utilitarian view of the yeah. snow. Yeah. Yeah. Some people. Can you, you know, I always love those stories when you hear from people that have lived like their whole life in a place without snow and then they see it for the first time. That must be kind of a bug out, you know? Yeah, I would imagine that is amazing. If you've lived like in Florida your whole life and then you go to New York during the winter. Well, I was even thinking yeah. like sub-Saharan Africa, right? Well, that's <laughs> you show true, up, yeah. You've lived your, you lived your whole life in, in Kenya or something and you show up and you're like, wait, what is all this? So I've met people that have, t- have talked about that experience. All right, Scott, Buck, on this evening's show, you mentioned the people from the DOJ are looking to claims of voter fraud. Has anyone in the lazy DOJ sent out agents from the myriad of agencies at their disposal to interview many of the Democrat operatives, poll workers named in the hundreds of affidavits concerning voter fraud. Let's be honest, any real pressure you put on these dirtbags will lead them to taking to talking in order to save their hides. Um, Scott, my understanding is they have actually looked into they have followed up on some of these affidavits. And and this, I think, is where there's so much of the disconnect right now. It's not that the people are lying who say what they say in the affidavits. That's not the belief from some of the follow-up from the DOJ. And I do have sources in the DOJ I've talked to about this. It's that what they saw, there is no proof of. Or what they believe they saw, there's no proof of. So an example, and before people get frustrated with what I'm saying, if I saw someone with a box of ballots and I just happen to see that every one of those ballots went for Joe Biden. And then all of those ballots are in a giant pile of overall ballots. What I what I saw, that's my word. And I can say I saw that. But how do you prove and how do you prove to a judge now that they're in the general pile that there was a mysterious box of a thousand only Joe Biden ballots that got counted at one point? And, and I know it's very frustrating, but. That's what a lot of these affidavits are attesting to things that I believe they saw and that are true. But if we can't prove it because Democrats remove the safeguards, we're not going to get the judicial satisfaction and justice we want. That's my essential point here. And that's just it's it sucks. But that's where we are. That's what we're dealing with. So. Scott, have they followed up on all these leads? No, but I believe they've I know they followed up on some of them and they've said, OK, well, you saw that. What, what do we do now? Well, how do we prove that this is true? A, a person going in front of a judge and saying, hey, I saw I saw 10,000 ballots. I swear I saw 10,000 ballots that showed up at 1 a.m. and all went for Joe Biden. Then the judge is going to say, OK, well, how do we how do we prove that? A person's word alone will not be enough for a judge to toss out votes. And I know you don't want to hear that. And I don't want to say that. But what I'm telling you is the truth about this situation. We've got to find a better way. We've got to find the smoking gun. We've got to have more than what we've had so far. 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We're rolling on with Roll Call. Don next up here. Hello, Team Buck. Love your show, Buck. I've been a longtime fan. Back to your guest hosting on the Rush days. Well, thank you so much, Don. Yeah, filling in for Rush Limbaugh was, was an amazing experience. Those many times I got to do it. So my question is, how do we overcome this fraud of an election? Seems like we need to organize to focus our collective efforts to ensure the fairness of future elections somehow. And I suspect it'll take conservatives at the local level and in our respective states. Your thoughts. Thanks to you and Bruce and Mark for a great show. Bruce and Mark, he's sending you thanks and a high five. Well, thank you for listening. There we go. As for how how do conservatives at the local level and in our respective states, um, what do we do? Yes, we absolutely need to look at all of the all of the shortcomings, all of the open doors for fraud in this and close them. And that's why this process of bringing these lawsuits has been important, despite what the media is saying about, oh, it's a threat to our democracy. No, we need to see where was this happening? How was this happening? We need to stop it going forward. And if we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt right now, or even by a preponderance of the evidence, I think would be the civil standard in these cases. But it needs to be a preponderance of the evidence or a, you know, more of the 51 percent standard. Um, If we can do that. Then maybe we pull off a last minute. But, you know, as I've been saying to you, folks, it's 90, it's 99 percent plus a done deal now with Joe Biden as the next president. That's where we are. I, I will not lie to you. There are other people out there who are, you know, who are millionaires with big platforms and they're going to pander. They're going to tell you, oh, no, just stay in the fight any moment now. I'm saying, no, we stay in the fight, but we have to face reality. And the reality is this is not going to go the way we want it to unless a miracle happens. That's the truth. I, just, you know, I wish people that had taken, you know, I, I take a risk. I'm still building a career. I still got bills to pay. You know, I, I still am trying to, you know, create and build a family. And, you know, same thing with producer Mark. But I got to tell you the truth. There are other people. They, they it doesn't matter. I mean, the audience could leave them. Right. They could flee. It doesn't they never have to work a day in their lives. They but they want the attention. They want the ratings. They want the power. That's what matters. So they'll lie to you. They'll lie to you. I won't do it. Uh, John writes, Dear Buck, don't misunderstand that what follows. I'm a true conservative. I seldom disagree with you, and I very much enjoy your show. You've got grit. The other night, however, you said in response to a listener's comment that there will be no secession. You don't know that for sure. No one does. But this I do know. Nations like, the, nations like people are mortal. Nothing in this world lasts forever. America is no exception. As much as you appreciate history... I need not remind you that history is replete with vanished civilizations, empires, and nations. This might seem like stating the obvious, but judging from what I've seen, few Americans stop to think of it. America will end someday. Of course, we do not know when or how, so secession conceivably might be a factor. Remember, too, President Reagan's observation that freedom is always one generation away from being lost. Again, I hope you don't misunderstand the spirit in which I say this. I'm not trying to be contentious. I'm merely being realistic and taking the long view. Keep up the good work. Best wishes to you and Mark. John, I appreciate it. And you're right. I, I, I always tell you this. No one can predict the future. I can't predict the future. No. That's why I say it's 99 percent. I don't say it's 100 percent that Joe Biden's the president. I say it's 99 percent. No one can predict the future. But we have to prepare based on what the odds are, what the probabilities are. And I think when I said there won't be secession, what I really want to say is we should not push for secession. We're not at that point. That's not where we want this country to go. But you're right. The future is not set and we don't know. We continue in the fight, my friends. That's why we have the motto of this show. That's why I'm here with you talking to you every day. 
because no matter what, we keep our shields high.